are listening to AI and the Law, a show where a lawyer, a technologist, and a layman walk into a bar, there's got to be a joke in there somewhere, and discuss a recent legal case filing against an AI company. These are not scripted. What you'll hear are real conversations as we talk, argue, cajole each other to think deeper about the legal aspects of using AI and what people should be concerned about when they're using one of these platforms. In today's episode, we examine the case of Stephen Thaler trying to copyright protect a piece of artwork generated by his instructions to an AI creation engine. We'll start with Joel's overview of the case. Today's court is now in session. The Thaler case is interesting for a couple of reasons because one is obviously that it deals with AI, but it is also an extension of existing legal principles. The long and short of it is, was that Stephen Thaler applied for a copyright with the Copyright Office. He indicated that he was the claimant, but that the author was essentially his creativity machine. This was, I think, essentially some, I I guess it was code that he developed in an effort to create, I think it was an image, right? And the Copyright Office rejected his application on grounds that, at least as applied for, there did not appear to be any human authorship. And, oh, backstory, one of the requirements of the Copyright Office, as recently as earlier this year in February, is that human authorship uh, is necessary for subject matter that is amenable to being copyrighted in the United States. This is something that you, me, and Shannon have talked about quite a bit. Is writing code to create something authorship? And the Copyright Office is saying, no, it's not. Yeah. And not only is the Copyright Office saying, no, it's not, you've got a you've got a district court down in D.C. It'll be interesting to see if there's going to be an appeal. I've not checked the docket. If there is going to be an appeal, I certainly think there's a colorable argument to be made that the authorship of the code that in turn transforms the code into an image is reliant at the end of the day on human inputs. And therefore, why is it not amenable to copyright protection? But it seems like there's a real sort of bright line rule here that it it seems that courts, and I guess by extension, the Copyright Office, wants no more than one degree of separation between the two. In other words, it, it wants the human to be involved in the development of the work, as opposed to, the, in this case, there being essentially an intermediary, the intermediator being the code. This case is really interesting for a lot of reasons. You know, we've heard as technologists that for many years that we can copyright our code, that we have licenses for our code, right? And, and what's interesting, and I, I haven't seen Thaler's um, application, did he apply to have the image, which would be the output, copyrighted? Or does he have the ability to have the code that he wrote actually copyrighted? Are we actually, as technologists, trying to get the right protections for the right creative work in terms of the chain and sequence of what we produce? I have so many things that came up from reading this case, trying to understand it. What does it mean from a technologist's perspective? 
one of the things I, I don't know about his creativity machine is, does it take prompts? Are we saying based on this case that you can't even apply for a copyright of an image that came from potentially code that was written by a human, prompts that may have actually been injected by a human? Does that mean like prompts potentially can't be copyrighted? Or like, where are we with prompts in terms of copyright? And then does this mean that now folks need to be concerned about code that actually maybe is copyrighted? Is it protected? What happens when AI helps you with copyright? It just started a whole bunch of like questions for me from a technology perspective that um, I'd love to see if we have answers for or we just have an understanding enough for the basic principles to maybe even highlight or illuminate a little bit of that. Joel, I think Shannon and I are on the same page here that the human aspect of all of this is the human created the code that created the image. Where are you seeing the courts play around with that arena? You know, this is the only decision that I'm aware of that has sort of taken a position on this. I, I'm not aware of anything else. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I'm just not aware of it. In answer to Shannon's question, first of all, my my understanding is, is that the copyright application was geared not to the code, and you're absolutely correct, code is amenable to copyright registration, but rather the output, meaning the photograph. And I feel like I've seen the photograph. It's almost reminiscent of a Renoir painting, as I recall. Oh, yeah, it was really interesting looking. It's like a bridge and it's got like pastel colors and it's it's lovely. Whether it's right or wrong, it seems like the Copyright Office in this court wants a direct association and believes that the development of code serves to somehow divorce it from human authorship. I'm not sure I agree with that. And that I think aligns with yourself and Mark. Let me pick up on that for a moment because it also brought and inspired my thought process around what I think is happening in the world, which is actually more and more folks are actually producing work similar to what you do with a movie or maybe even books, um, where you actually have many different contributors. And if you've seen movies lately, like you've seen the number of studios that have participated in that movie and there's some sort of cut that each of them takes. From a copyright perspective, do we have this notion potentially of chainable copyright because i feel like where the the law is actually not kept up with maybe what's happening in society is that there's now becoming little parts of work that are actually now getting potentially even restitched together in unique and novel ways and does that mean that maybe a copyright is actually a collection of copyrights going forward that potentially ai has the ability for it to be able to say hey, I took a little bit of this and I took a little bit of that. You prompted me to go find this other thing to replace that. So actually, this work is 55 copyrights in one chained copyright. And ultimately, we're actually getting to the point where maybe what's happened is NFT is ahead of us in Web3, which is, can we actually understand and assert what went into a work of art enough to be able to compensate people? An interesting extension of that has already played out in the music industry called sampling. The idea that you can take somebody else's work without their approval, without asking, and use it as a sample in your own music. And Shannon, I, I think of that almost as that chaining aspect that you're talking about. 
Can you put different pieces together? Only in this case, there was no copyright violation because the courts said sampling is okay. So there's two things I want to follow up on. Number one is going back to the Staler decision. Let's understand why it came out the way it did. And that is is that Thaler made admissions that he did not, that he was not involved to to the extent that the Copyright Office was looking for a criteria. And so was the court, actually, because, of course, it was this was decided on summary judgment. He made certain admissions that doomed his case. Okay. Mm. Okay. This is what's really important is because this comes down to a real facts and circumstances test going forward. And I think we've talked about this sort of offline, which is that a different set of circumstances or certainly a different set of admissions would have arguably produced a different result. And if there had been a statement by Thaler that talks about the extent to which he was involved in the, as I said earlier, orientation or some added some additional human element to the finished work. Okay. And that's, I think the key as opposed to the code that creates the work, then I think we may have arguably seen a different outcome. When I initially read the part that you're talking about here, my response was, he did that on purpose. This is a test case. I got that same sentiment because, first of all, he is a frequent litigant, okay? He is. He has been before, I think, the courts in connection with appealing copyright decisions. So he's transformed this into his own little cottage industry. I agree with you 100%. <laughs> and I think he was intentionally trying to see what are the boundaries. So I agree with you there. I do, though there's nothing in the opinion itself that would indicate as much, but you have to look beneath it a little bit. The other thing I want to I want to talk about, though, quickly, and, and you raise this, and certainly any lawyers in the IP space who's listening to us, I think, will appreciate this, but it's an important distinction. You talked about, and to use, and if I'm screwing this up, Shannon, please correct me, but you talked about a chain of copyrights. There is a concept in copyright law between derivative works and transformative works, okay? The former belongs to the rights holder, where a transformative work, okay, may be amenable to a new copyright registration. And this most recently kicked around this past summer when the Supreme Court ruled on this Andy Warhol portrait of Prince, if you remember, And the tension, and this is not unique to this case, but the tension, was it a derivative work or was it a transformative work? Okay. Mm, Um, Interesting. And and, and this is really interesting because as the names would imply, a derivative work is a natural extension of the initial work. I'm giving you sort of a lay person's definition and I'm probably not even doing it justice. Conversely, a transformative work, while it may have inspiration, the original work, is sufficiently different, or to use the language of copyright, sufficiently dissimilar, that it that it cannot be said to be exclusively derived from the original work. These are real sort of facts and circumstances. It is admittedly a subjective test. But I, I raise that because I think that issue of the tension between derivative and transformative work certainly has a place here 
when we're talking about AI-generated works, to the extent that they may be amenable to copyright registration. It's not confronted in this case, but I could see if, for example, we type into uh, a chatbot, give me a riff on a Picasso. I I can imagine these issues being the subject of some discussion. And that's really helpful because I agree with you both. I think that Thaler is actually pushing the boundaries on purpose with this case. I think it, it didn't go where he wanted, which is it got, it didn't get into the copyright office. So that, that first hurdle is, all right. So, you know, if you're a technologist, what you put on that application is important. And I feel like looking at his application would be helpful because then as a technologist, you're already, you've got a pattern. So to some extent, I think he is paving the way, if you will, for what is and isn't actually going to be something that could be protected. Um, that's what I think is fascinating about this case is that I, and I always like folks that are like, let's push this, let's push, push that, let's try to figure things out. And I feel like his case actually does some of that work. He's taking it to appeal and he's doing this and he's doing that. That actually does help from a technologist perspective to understand what the boundaries are. And I think most technologists are most innovative when the boundaries are more bright line. So having an understanding like, hey, it does have to have human authorship of some sort. And then the question is, of what sort? And I think that's potentially going to set the boundaries for what we talk about over the next many episodes. To me, the notion of chainable and and now apparently derivative and transformative, thank you for the language, that's very helpful. That's going to be fascinating because as a technologist, like I said, our worlds are changing in an interesting and unique way. And I wonder too, if we've really thought through open source and all the different things that are happening in the community from a technology standpoint. We're at the point where he has been denied for the case, assuming it's an appeal right now. Where are they in the process and what time frame are we looking at? The court systems cannot possibly keep up with the change in the frequency of change that's going on right now? I think what's really interesting at this time and this place is that the courts are not keeping up with AI and AI work. And what's fascinating about that is during this period of time, if you're a technologist and this case is actually running its course, how it turns out is actually such a big deal because it's actually the question of, Can something I build actually create a copyrighted capability of some sort? Uh, And and that's why I said it's interesting because it's an image, but does it also then extend to code and all these other things? I don't know, Joel. That's definitely a question on my mind because if this turns out this way, is this where copyright no longer means anything to a technologist? That's where my head goes is this this copyright matter to a technologist going forward? Is AI going to break copyright? I don't know. I'm really fascinated about that particular question because I am seeing in the industry more and more technology companies talking about potentially doing legal indemnification um, as part of their offering. And that is a fascinating turn of events because as a technologist, a cybersecurity professional, all the hats I've worn in my career, 
that says that software's coming out the shoot faster than some of those protective measures can catch up. And that means now, essentially, it is a little bit of a wild west scenario between customers and their providers and providers. It just opens up a, a can of worms, I think. So the faster this can get to, I think, Earth, this particular case, and the more it actually sets up the rules of the system, if you will, as president, that is something I think is necessary right now, especially, like I said, as a technologist, because without it, uh, I still feel like there's so many open questions. And that means that the constraints of the system are still questionable. Let me just, in the in the two seconds I had here, I can confirm that as of this moment, no appeal has been filed. But again, that time, if my, if my counting is correct, would expire at midnight tonight. It's entirely possible that he will file his notice of appeal. Well, I'm curious about tomorrow then. <laughs> then the question comes from my perspective of what happens if he doesn't appeal? What does this mean in terms of from a technology perspective? What does this turn into as bright lines? Does it turn into any bright lines? Is there still open questions? I think what this means is if he does not appeal is that this is a district court decision in the District of D.C. in favor of the Copyright Office. I don't think it has any preclusive effect, meaning a California district court would be is not bound by this decision. And if it were to be persuaded, and California is just an example, if it were to be persuaded that Thayer is onto something here, you could conceivably have conflicting decisions. At which point, and usually the way it works is the Supreme Court likes to take cases where there's a split at the circuit level, because a circuit court is the sort of terminal court uh, of a federal court, short of resulting appeal. If, let's just play this out, if the D.C. Circuit Court affirmed this decision and a district court in California, for example, came to an opposite conclusion. And by the way, I'm setting the Ninth Circuit up as being the polar opposite, because more often than not, you get agreement with other circuits and the Ninth Circuit does its own thing. You know, as a New York lawyer, I'm I'm constantly facing decisions where the Ninth Circuit came out exactly the opposite for one reason or another. So I don't mean to pick on the Ninth Circuit, but I'm just saying if if one circuit is going to disagree, I can imagine being the Ninth Circuit. So if the Ninth Circuit disagrees and the D.C. Circuit disagrees, then, of course, you have that the issue would be right for Supreme Court review, which doesn't mean the Supreme Court necessarily must take it, but rather the indicia that all of the Supreme Court, you know, gurus in Washington obsess over would be present, right? There's a conflict at the circuit level. It's an important question of law that needs to be resolved. What say you, Supreme Court? What Joel just said has me wondering as a technologist, will there be court shopping happening to ripen and and make this more bright line? And have we got anything on the horizon right now that suggests that? Do we see anything with the Ninth Circuit that could suggest that? If no, then again, that sets up the paradigm, I think, of timing technology. And as technologists, we're always looking for windows of opportunity. What are those concerns? And trying to figure out what does that mean in terms of the things that we're innovating on? 
I'm like I said, I'm super curious. It's a really good case. And it definitely sparked my concern questions. It really opened up my head to say, oh, boy, what are we actually applying for? How does all of this come together? What about some of the works that are out there that haven't quite hit the copyright office that we know copyrights are can be done without even registering. And I, I'm just curious about a lot of these things, especially now as we have this particular, what looks to be a little bit of a bright line question being solved for. Let me tell you why I really hope he does file an appeal. And I want to just read a paragraph from the decision because while the court then goes on to later say that this is not that case, this is the real issue that I think is deserving of an appeal. Undoubtedly, we are approaching new frontiers in copyrights as artists put AI in their toolbox to be used in the generation of new visual and other artistic works. The increased attenuation of human creativity from the actual generation of the final work will prompt challenging questions regarding how much human input is necessary to qualify the user of an AI system as a quote-unquote author of a generated work. The scope of the protection obtained over the result in the image how to assess the originality of the AI-generated works where the systems may have been trained on unknown pre-existing works, how copyright might best be used to incentivize creative works involving AI and more. See, for example, letter from Senators Tom Tillis and Chris Coons to Kathy Vidal, Undersecretary of Commerce for Intellectual Property and Director of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and Shira Permiller, uh, Register of Copyrights, blah, 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 blah. They give the citation. This case, however, is not nearly so complex. While plaintiff attempts to transform the issue presented here by asserting new facts that he provided instructions directed his AI to create the work, that AI is entirely controlled by him and that AI only operates at his direction, implying that he played a controlling role in generating the work, these statements directly contradict the administrative record. Okay, And it's on mm. that issue... It's on that issue really is what is the degree of human input? Uh, that was a big windup, I suppose, that I really sincerely hope some court is given the opportunity, a higher court is given the opportunity to speak of, because that's really what this case turns on, right? How much human activity or human control is enough? Is it orienting images? Is it putting a period in a sentence? Is it or offsetting it with a, you know, a subordinate clause and a couple of commas? I don't know the answer. It, um, you know, is it marking it with a pixel? There's so many questions in my head that right. suggest that. And then the next question is, if you were to use those AI generated images, which apparently right now no one knows can be copyrighted or not, in your work, does that also set your work up as a derivative of an AI generated capability? This is where I feel like the meat and potatoes. That adjourns our session for today. If you enjoyed the conversation, you can pay for our services by subscribing to AI in the Law on your favorite podcast platform. We're always open to hearing about new case filings. There's a link in the show notes where you can leave a comment on something you'd like us to look at. AI in the Law is a Sourced Network production. See you in court. <laughs>